0: Well, good morning, 4th Avenue. Greetings from uh, Pleasant Valley Church of Christ in Little Rock, uh, where Kyle and I worked together for a couple of years and shared an office. So I know this guy intimately, and you have a great, great dude. I remember when I was at Harding, um, I, I came to 4th Avenue for my only time before today, and I was just super impressed. Joe Beam was preaching Alexander Campbell used to preach here, um, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And through the years, I have followed y'all's church and your pastors. You've had uh, Joe from Alexander Campbell, and there was quite a spell that I didn't know about, and then Joe Beam, and then my good friend, may he rest in peace, Josh Patrick, and then Patrick Mead, and now Kyle and Abby. And I want to let you know how grateful I am for this church and for y'all and y'all's partnership with Kyle and Abby. Take care of them. He means a lot to me. She means a lot to my family. Um, They're great, great leaders. And our church, when our elders heard that I was coming here to do this, they were like, would you tell Kyle and Abby hi from us? Because they mean a lot to us. So uh, when I was in college at Harding... Uh, My now wife, but then girlfriend, and I were we're driving back to Texas, because she's from Texas. We were driving back to Texas to see her family, and I was driving my parents' minivan, because that's really cool to pick up women with back in the day. I was driving my parents' minivan on I-30, and the speed limit was 70 back in the day, and I didn't want to go 70. I wanted to go faster. So I decided I would get... I didn't want a ticket because we didn't have a lot of money, poor college students. I decided I would go get behind some cars that were going a lot faster than us. And, um, you know, what policeman is going to crack that code? So we're going about 85 miles an hour behind two other cars. And all of a sudden, a policeman, a state trooper pulls off, um, gets behind us and pulls me over. So I'm on the side of I-30 and then he goes ahead and he pulls over the other cars. And as I'm sitting there, he's like maybe a fifth of a mile ahead on the interstate. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, dreading getting a ticket and all that. And my wife, my girlfriend at the time, Leslie says, you know, he wasn't pulling you over. And I was like, babe, I think he was because he did this like hand gesture when he went by. And, he, and she said, no, he wasn't pulling you over. That was a hand gesture saying, thank you for letting me by. And I started thinking about it. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. That's probably what was happening. And I look like an idiot just sitting here waiting. So I, like a law-abiding citizen, put my blinker on and get back on the interstate, drive past the police officer, and we return the gesture. And this guy who's in the process of writing tickets throws his hands up in the air, gets back in his car, and about, you know, I'm just cruising along about 60 miles an hour and a, a few seconds later he flies past us going like 100 miles an hour lights and sirens on he sees he's passing my parents minivan gets over on the service road I now know I better pull over so I pulled over again he gets on the um the the um whatever the you know not the interstate but the yeah okay you got it the bypass what is it called shoulder. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) He gets on the shoulder of the road and he backs up like a fourth of a mile, gets out, door stays open. He opens my door. He pulls me out of the van, throws me up against my parents' minivan and starts to frisk me. And there's something about, something happened in me when he started frisking me that made me just have my, my mind just broke because I had my own personal Genesis 3 moment. I was like, the woman, the woman that was given me (laughs) did this to me. (laughs) There's more to that story, Uh, but I I will tell you, I have been arrested several times in my life, mostly in college, and one of the things about being a Bible major and getting arrested, by the way, Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested over 100 times, so come on, but (laughs) Uh, One of the things about reading the Bible while you're going through, you know, legal problems is certain things stand out to you. Like, for example, when I read the book of Acts with people who have never read the Bible before, one of the things that surprises them, that doesn't surprise people who just grew up in church, is how often the early Christians were in jail. They were always on the wrong side of the law, especially when the law was unjust. There's a preacher that I really like named Mark Buchanan who used to go around to different youth rallies and he would hold up two different DVDs. One was a sewing machine instructional video. Like here's how to use a sewing machine. And the other was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You know that movie. You you know, there's Nazis and good and evil and intrigue and romance and all these things. And then at the end of the sermon, he would say... Now, which one do you think of represents more your local church? And without fail, they said, well, the sewing machine video. And if that's the case, then somewhere along the way, we've missed what it meant to be the people of God, because this was never God's intention. The kingdom of God demands more than just lip service. It actually involves faith. Another synonym for faith is risk. It involves taking risk. And this is the point of the book of both Luke and Acts. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke, it's important in Churches of Christ, one of the things, I wish I could go back and tell Alexander Campbell this. Don't assume the gospel, right? Because Acts is important only after you get Luke. Luke. Right? There's a reason that Acts is the, the sequel, the Empire Strikes Back of the Gospel of Luke, because what Jesus did is what the early Christians did, which is what we're trying to do. Jesus is the pattern upon which we are trying to live our life. And the whole story of Jesus starts with a nobody named Mary. The word Luke uses to describe this young teenage girl is Anawim. Let me hear you say Anawim. It means poor, downtrodden, somebody who does not have a voice, which makes it ironic that her voice is going to be. What changes the world? God, through an angel, comes to her and says, you're going to have a baby. And she is just a teenage girl, but she's had that biology class. And she knows certain things haven't happened in order for her to have a baby. And, but God is basically saying in this moment, can you trust me? And Christian theologians for thousands of years have said ever since, where Eve said no, Mary said yes. Can you trust me? Mary is the new and better Eve, and after she accepts the Lord's invitation to risk, she steps back and sings a song. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46, "...my soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations except Protestants will call me blessed." For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has remembered his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just as he promised our ancestors. He is remembering us. This is the father, God who keeps his promises. She is reminding herself and those who are listening to the song of Israel's greatest hits. But listen, not everybody likes this song. Because when she sings about those who have thrones, the rulers being brought down and God exalting the lowly, the people who have thrones aren't a big fan of this new song. So for example, Herod the Great, he is dealing, he's a tyrant dealing in power based on death. But this is something that Luke is really, really clear on. The kingdom of God is always good news for anyone, but it is not good news for everyone. It depends on how you receive the kingdom of God. Because people who have their own petty, self centered kingdoms might not like this particular kingdom. And this has been from the beginning. So in Genesis, as soon as sin enters the world, within one chapter, we're introduced to this guy named Lamech. Now, Lamech is French for the mech. And here's how Lamech talk come on, y'all, that was gold, that was gold. Here's how Lamech talks about how he's going to live in this new broken world. After murder and sin has brought, been brought in, in Genesis chapter 4, if you could put that up, Lamech says to his wives... Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I love how he refers to himself in third person. What a sweetheart. What a romantic. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech will be avenged 77 times. Anybody who comes into conflict with Lamech, he's saying... I will kill not just them, I will kill 77 times. By the way, you may have noticed Jesus in the kingdom of God in the gospel of Matthew is reversing the code of Lamech. When Peter asked, how many times should I forgive someone who has sinned against me? He is saying, not like Lamech. It's different than Lamech. But the truth is, Lamech's way of life is contagious. And by the way, it makes sense. If you are, um, it, it, you can explain Lamech pretty easily. It's preventative, right? He's letting people know, know ahead of time, hey, you don't want to mess with me or my family, because if you do, then there's going to be severe consequences. Like, we get this, because his way of thinking is so contagious. When I was growing up, uh, my older brother had moved out of the house, he'd gotten married, and uh, my, mom take, my mom and dad take me over to Curtis's house, and he's got Rambo first blood on and my mom says to Curtis, hey, turn that off. We don't watch movies like that. But it's his house. And by the way, we didn't watch movies like that when I lived at mom and dad's house. But Rainbow First Blood's on. Curtis is, you know, a new young man with his own new house. And so he's going to leave it on. And so five minutes after mom says, we don't watch movies like that, I kid you not, my mom yells at the TV, well, pick up the rock and kill him. <laughs> because this way of thinking is contagious. We live, we swim in this whole thing. And if you ever doubt this, just pick up your newspaper, turn on any cable network. Because since the since death has entered the world, the fear of death has carried the day. And by the time of the first century, by the time of Mary, this world, this way of thinking had been... Um, It had been so perfected by the Romans. They actually had this thing called the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, but it was peace by a, a bloody Roman sword. In fact, I think one thing Christians should do is meditate on the cross from time to time. Think about those moments. I mean, Jesus died naked, right? It wasn't just a tool of violence. It was a tool of shame. It was a tool of letting people know if you mess with Rome, you will die a mocking death in front of your friends and family. And Caesar's weapons, like the spear that gets thrust into Jesus' side, what the cross is trying to invite you into is consider which side of greatness is that spear on. The centurion or the one he's plunging it into? Because this way of thinking, it's everywhere. And Christians can so quickly just adopt the way of the world. We can uncritically just assume that Jesus is like all other world religious leaders. As if lots of gods die naked on a cross. But Jesus is not just inviting us into some kind of religious ideology... This is God who died, a God that started in Mary's womb. There was a saying going around in the Roman world that if you messed with them, they would crucify people until they ran out of wood for the crosses. If a city revolted, they would crucify people till they ran out of space for the crosses and crosses for the body. But it wasn't just death that Rome used to motivate Turning your Bible to Acts chapter 4. After Jesus has been resurrected he sends out this motley crew of fishermen and disciples to do the things that he had taught them and shown them how to do. And so at one point uh, Peter and James and John they heal a man on the outside of a gate uh, of the temple, a beggar that was well known. And because of this in Acts chapter 4 this is what happens. The priest and the captain ...captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees... ...came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people... ...they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people... ...proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead... They seized Peter and John because it was evening, and they put them in jail until the next day. So this, they heal someone, and they put them in jail, which is surprising. You wouldn't expect them to put you in jail for healing someone. That seems like a pretty good thing. But did you notice what they said they were upset by? The resurrection. Disturbed by the resurrection. What would make anyone disturbed by this? I love this whole thing. I love the idea of this because here's the point. If the status quo works for you, you're not gonna like the resurrection. That when God turns everything upside down, this Luke and Acts is really clear on this. There's a reason the Sadducees don't want to believe in the resurrection. Because God starts to get in your business. Because all of a sudden you realize you're going to have to face a God who is going to hold you to account for everything you've done. And yes, grace upon grace for how we live. We don't earn it. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. But the kingdom of God, we don't get to make this up. And so there's this group of religious peoples who are disturbed by the resurrection. So they put them in jail. They hope they're going to get a good scare in them. But instead this happens in verse 8 says then, Peter, filled by the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Every... Sermon in the book of Acts is basically like, Jesus is God, you killed him, say you're sorry. Over and over again, that's how they're talking to the religious leaders. And at one point he says, if we're on trial for kindness, which I think is a pretty great genius back, uh, backhanded uh, comment. But what Peter is saying is brilliant. He's saying, look, we're going to keep doing what we're doing in the name of Jesus. And you couldn't stop him, so... I guess you could keep trying, but that seems unwise. And in verse 19, he goes on and says this. Peter and John says, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Basically, Peter's saying, look, you can do to us what you did to Jesus. You can beat us. You can imprison us. You can even kill us. But we're not going to back down. This is, we have a higher calling to God. Here's what I want you to see. Christianity, Jesus followers, you have a rich tradition of something called civil disobedience. And that starts right here. Peter is submitting to the laws. If, if they think, these rulers think that you need to, he needs to be arrested, he'll let them arrest him. But he will not let that law be the judge... ...of what he considers to be God's higher law. And the fuel behind this whole scene is when Peter... ...because they arrest him because he had healed a a beggar, right? The beggar, this lame man, runs into the temple... ...and when everybody asks Peter, what is going on... ...Peter says, look at this in Acts 3, verse 20... ...heaven, he's talking about Jesus... ...heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything... Here's what he's saying. The promise that God has had from the very beginning... ...that he's looking at his blind man... ...they're asking him questions about about this this, uh, lame beggar... ...who's now walked in. Everybody knows he was lame. Now all of a sudden he can go in the temple... ...and he dances into the temple. And Peter says that was a sign of coming attractions. It's a preview of coming attractions... ...because what God did for the lame man... ...he's going to do for everything... He actually says that, and some translations call it the restoration of all things, which is a pretty big vision statement. I don't know how many of y'all grew up in the tribe I grew up in, Churches of Christ, but um, I grew up in a 10 person anti church in Arkansas. Best church I've ever been a part of, and I've been a part of some really great churches. Um, but before we went to that ten-person anti-church, we, my family, when I was like ten and eleven, we went to this hundred-person church, or as it's known in Arkansas, a mega-church. And we were, <laughs> we were at this hundred-person church, and I was getting to the age where church was starting to get boring. And my dad took me to a Wednesday night men's business meeting. And at one point, my dad brought up uh, that church didn't have elders or anything, so it was like popular vote of the fellas or whatever. Anyway, my dad brought up that there was a widow that needed some financial assistance. What he did not know is that one of the more influential guys in that church had beef with this widow. And so at one point, my dad is you know, saying, well, we need to help her. And the guy keeps saying, well, there's all these reasons why we shouldn't. And finally, my dad was like, look, she needs like heat. And so this guy stands up and he says, listen, Cletus. That's my dad's name. That's not a joke. He says, listen, Cletus. I was a golden glove champion in high school and I could still whip your rear. And I remember as an 11-year-old boy being like, now this is church. (laughs) Right? I want you to think, I mean, this church has been around for a long time. This community of people has been around for a long time. You've seen a lot. And if you're on the outside, it doesn't matter what group of Christian, what group of Jesus followers you get with. This is the temptation of people. We have fought in our tribe about some silly stuff, right? We have fought about whether you can have kitchens, whether you can have Sunday school, whether you could pay the preacher, which is a legitimate church fight. Let's keep having that one. Um, Whether you can have a guitar. You know, we fought about a lot of stuff. But when the early, the first Christians pick a fight, look at what they're picking a fight for. The restoration of all things. What God did for Jesus' body, he's going to do for your body. But not just that. What God did for Jesus' body, he's going to do for this creation that he made and said was good. We're part of a restoration movement which is a really good thing, but you cannot restore what the early church was like until you restore what the early church cared about, which was the restoration of all things. What that means is that this story is not just some private religious part of your life. It's about every square inch of creation. God is not going to allow Satan to say, at least I got that. On any single molecule. And that's why the apostles do what they do next. In verse 23, look at this in uh, chapter 4, verse 23. On their release, because they don't know what to do with them. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city... ...to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, who you appointed, anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen... Now, Lord, would you consider their threats and enable your servant to speak your words with great boldness? Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they just get out of prison and they pray. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and everything in it, which is a great way to start a prayer. Remember, they had just been released from prison. They'd spent a night, and they'd been threatened with beatings and and, uh, even death. And here's what I know about us. If this is us, when we get out of that prison, you want to know what our prayer sounds like? God, thank you for delivering us from that situation. We now see that this is not fertile ground. Thank you, God, for delivering us. We now know that this is not what your will is. They don't pray like that. They don't pray for deliverance. Instead, they pray for boldness. And here's why. Because what do you think it does to you when you realize that for the past few years, the very thing you've been praying for was the thing that was against God's will. I mean, think about it. The the disciples' prayers a few months earlier would have been like, God, please, Father, please don't let the religious leaders take notice of Jesus. God, please don't let them arrest him. God, please let him get out of this. God, please don't let them crucify And now, with a few months' clarity and the Holy Spirit's help, they realize the very things they had been praying, the very things they had been praying against was the things that God was going to work the most powerfully through. They have realized something that sets the tone for the book of Acts. Pilate and Caesar think they're in charge. They think they're in control. They think... That what they're doing is calling the shots, but every shot they call is foreordained because God has brought down the rulers and raised up the servants. And so now they don't, when they're threatened, they don't like shy away. They don't try to tell God what to do, even though their lives are being threatened. Instead, you know what they do? They say, God, would you just consider these threats? Would you just consider them? Because they realized God was up to something more than just their own personal safety. The gates of hell, when Jesus prophesies in Matthew 16, it's one of my favorite prophecies. Because he prophesies us. He prophesies you, us, sitting here, being here today. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. This is an aggressive community of faith fueled by a resurrection... There's One of my favorite uh, Anglican bishops, N.T. Wright, said... ...everywhere the early Christians go, they, serve, uh, they started a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. And he says, this is why, if you could put that quote up. Death is the last weapon of the tyrant. And the point of the resurrection, despite much misunderstanding... ...is that death has been defeated. Resurrection is not the redescription of death... It is its overthrow, and with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. When I was in Abilene, uh, I was doing a series on how to die at Highland, and there was this man who was, he grew up in Iran, he was a, a, con, a convert from Islam, and he was telling me. About um, this Muslim tradition that they did in his home country, where once a year you would go lay in an open grave for like half an hour, and you would like you know look up and consider your immortality—that you're going to die. And I was like, that sounds weird enough to be cool. Let's try that. And so I know Randy Harris is one of my best friends, and I know he loves weird stuff. So I was like, Randy, you want to do this with me? And he was like, yeah, I want that's my Randy Harris impression. So yeah, so we, me and Randy and my preaching intern, we go with uh, Hussein. We go to, with Hussein to this grave. Um, another guy at our church, has uh, he's a um, funeral home director, and he had like a, a graveyard and a lot of questions. But anyway, we went... And we lay down in this grave, and it was kind of a profound moment that I still think about from time to time. And when we went into the grave, um, our graves, nobody was there, because that would be kind of creepy. But after 30 minutes, when we climbed out, some people had come to visit and pay respect to their loved ones. And so all of a sudden... Do you see what happens in the book of Acts? Resurrection to you know, people who grew up in church sounds so pleasant. But if your life is oriented around the power of death, Jesus' cross and resurrection makes you ask some pretty significant questions. They are disturbed by the resurrection. Here's one of, the, one of the, in 421, one of the things that point, I, I think and love is what the religious leaders do when they realize, what do you do with men and women like this? After further threats, they let them go because they could not decide how to punish them. Because what do you do with people like this? And this is at the heart of the Christian faith. You guys are starting to talk about vision. Here's my challenge to you. Dream big. not because you can do it, but dream God-sized dreams. God has not sustained this church for over a hundred years for no reason. The best y'all have had a great season of ministry for decades and decades. but could it be that the best days of Fourth Avenue are ahead of you? Could it be that the resurrection power of King Jesus, is just aching to get into your dreams of what you can do together. I'd like to suggest, especially for those of us who grew up in church, that when we do announcements or when we do ways to give or when we do whatever it is, you know, e-blast that apparently every one of y'all 100% read. I mean, that's amazing. Um, Whatever it is, that our churches add a tag. And it's just this. Support your local revolution. There has not been a revolution since Christianity. In fact, I'm convinced that most of what we call conservative today is yesterday's progressives. And most of what we call progressives today is not a new thing. It's a reversion to what was like before Jesus' movement. There has not been a revolution since Christianity. And you, church of Jesus Christ, are stewards of the story of Jesus you're stewards of this revolutionary story of a naked, crucified man who God said, I'm not done with this. And for 2,000 years, things like human dignity, human rights, better treatment for women, that the idea like there should be no more slavery comes because the God of the universe stepped into the body of a slave and died a slave's death. Because what Mary sang about is what happens in Acts and in church history. What the apostles are doing in this story is putting skin on the very song that Mary sang. Did you know that song, Magnifica?" we're like, thank you, Randy Gill, we really appreciate it. It's a great song. It's a wonderful song. Did you know, and this is true, in South American countries, there are six or seven countries where that song is illegal to sing. That song run by tyrants, run by dictators, they know what kind little church people forget. This is not some lullaby. This is God saying, I'm on the side of the lowly. I'm on the side of the dying because I have resurrection power. And when Mary sings this, none of this has happened yet. But she's hoping in a day... ...when God keeps his promises. And maybe we can too. I like the way the preacher Barbara Brown Taylor says this. She says, you can decide to be a daredevil... ...a test pilot. You can decide to take part in a plan that you did not choose... ...doing things that you do not know how to do... ...for reasons you do not entirely understand. You can take part in a thrilling and dangerous scheme... ...with no script and no guarantees. You too can agree, like Mary... To smuggle God into the world inside your own body. This is the call of any local church. To smuggle God into the world through our own bodies. We call that church. And I like to say, support your local revolution. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this body of King Jesus that has been meeting in this place faithfully for decades. Would you please bless this church as they think about what your good and preferred future is? Would you please bless them with a vision that comes from beyond them, one that they did not choose but chose them? Would you give them spirit-enabled courage? God, would you particularly bless the leadership Would you bless the shepherds and Kyle as they look forward to what you're trying to do in this area and in their local community. God, may they not be afraid. May they consider the needs of this city, what this congregation's talents and skills are, and would you give them wisdom to lean into the Jesus story with great courage and with great joy and hope. Thank you for this church. Please bless Kyle and Abby and their ministry. and Bless this church's ministry to Franklin, Tennessee. In Jesus' name, amen.